Okay, let's have a seat if you have your Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. Good morning, if you're new. My name is Sam and I have the joy of uh, preaching a lot here. Uh, We are in the book of Matthew and we will continue to go through the book of Matthew through Easter. Uh, And uh, we'll begin what is book 4, which is pretty much Matthew 21 through 25, I think. A lot of uh, eschatology and and crazy stuff. Um, And that will take us uh, through July and then... um, We'll have a little bit of break in August. So we're in Matthew 20 today, uh, verses uh, 1 to 16. So if you follow along, uh, I'm going to read God's Word. Verse 1 in chapter 20 says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And so the last will be first and the first last. This is God's Word. Let me pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for its power. I thank You for um, giving it to us, Lord, so that we could understand You. And You, though mysterious, didn't have to remain a complete mystery. Lord, I pray that You will move me out of the way. Spirit, You will speak the words You need to speak to each of us, whether it be words of conviction or comfort. But let us all be led to the cross where we can find grace. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, last week, uh, I really believe these two stories go together, though they cross the chapter heading, which uh, Matthew didn't put there. Uh, but they kind of go together, I think should be read together. But last week we saw a respected, religious, rich young man approach Jesus, and he was convinced of his own goodness, but uncertain of his salvation. And so he asked Jesus uh, what last thing he needed to do to receive the kingdom of heaven, to make sure he inherited eternal life. Because he was not sure. And his problem, he found out, was not a failure to do as much as it was a failure to believe. Which I think is most Christians' problem, honestly. 
Um, he had his Savior, and he believed in this Savior deeply and believed that this Savior, namely possessions and money and, and wealth and maybe even position, would rescue him from the hell that he had created uh, in his mind, which perhaps was poverty or insignificance. Jesus reveals um, that true object of his life by basically asking him to sell it, namely sell all your possessions, showing him what he really was putting his faith in, and give them to the poor, and follow him. And this young man walks away weeping, rejecting Jesus' invitation to live free, without fear, without worry, with him. And Jesus says several times uh, at the end of this last week's passage in the beginning, uh, or the end of this one as well, uh, that many firsts will be last. He uses this constantly. Last will be first, and first will be last. And it's shocking for um, a people who consider power and, and purity and, and, and really prosperity as signs of God's blessing. And clearly Jesus is revealing through this rich dude that his value system or the kingdom of heaven's value system is very different than the world's value system. The kingdom of God is not for those who are prideful enough to declare they're good and strong, but for those humble enough to admit they're weak and poor. And as the disciples watch this prideful guy walk away, weeping, unwilling though to surrender his stuff, what do they do? They consider their own sacrifices. It's kind of like when you meet a person that has a really broken story, and in your mind, quietly, without anyone knowing, you're kind of like, glad that's not me, right? Glad I'm not that messed up. In fact, I'm pretty awesome, now that I think about it. And so, they consider their own sacrifices. And Peter, speaking from them all, says this at the end of 19, see Jesus? As if Jesus doesn't know. See, Jesus, we, unlike Cryboy over there, have surrendered everything, he says. We've surrendered everything, Jesus. What's in it for us? Now, at the end of 19, Jesus gives a very gracious answer. He's very kind to him. And he tells them that they'll be rewarded. But now, he's going to challenge them just as he challenged the rich man. He challenged the rich man about his pride in possessions, and now he's going to warn his disciples about taking pride in their sacrifices and their work. These two stories go together. It's just because someone has surrendered all their possessions for Jesus doesn't mean they've actually surrendered their heart to him. We have to be careful. In other words, I think just like the story, if you're familiar with it, or the parable of the irreligious prodigal son and the religious prod or older brother, these two stories tell kind of the same story from two different ways. They're basically two ways to avoid God. Being really bad or being really good. The irreligious typically will try to avoid relationship with Jesus, like the rich man here, by living according to their own rules and making other things or themselves 
saviors. But the religious do the same. They avoid relationship with God by living out what they think are the good rules and doing good things. And then earning their salvation, believing that they're owed for what they've done. So I think for that purpose, Jesus tells a story of a master to his disciples, because the rich man's gone at this point. And it's for anyone who claimed to be a Christian. And it's a story, it's pretty simple, just to summarize it for you. We have a master who hires workers to bring into the field, to bring in the harvest. And he hires the first workers at 6 in the morning. Goes to the marketplace, hires them, and they work a full day under the sun, which would be to about 6. So, 10-12 hours. He then, uh, as they go out at 9 a.m., he hires more workers. And he hires more workers at noon. And that's the hottest part of the day, right? 1 o'clock to about 5 o'clock. And at 5 o'clock, he hires another group of guys. Each wave of laborers, beginning at 6 a.m., works a little bit less. The first guy is obviously working more, and then the 5 5 p.m. guys work about an hour. And at evening, so that'd be about 6, the master calls them all in, and he begins to pay them, beginning with the 5 p.m. dudes. Story wouldn't work if it was the other way, because the guys at 6 a.m. wouldn't see what's going on. He starts to pay these 5 p.m. guys and gives them a denarius, which is a full day's wage. Then they pay the guys at noon, full day's wage. And the guys at 9 a.m., full day's wage. And the 6 a.m. guys are like, surely, here it comes. And they get the same amount. Those who worked the full day get the same wage as those who worked for an hour. And upon receiving their pay, those who got hired earliest grumble at the unfairness of the master. Even though, think about it, they were chosen, while others were not to begin with, they feel ungrateful. Even though they were employed in meaningful work, they feel cheated. Even though they agreed to the day's wage, they feel entitled to more. Ungrateful, cheated, and entitled. Now, many of us actually, I think, identify with the workers. I think the average person would read this and go, man, they should be ticked. That's that's the natural reaction for us. That is unfair. If that's not your natural reaction, maybe I don't know what's wrong with you, because that's the natural reaction. Should be. If you put yourself in that situation that, you know, of a job like that where some guy, you know, got hired at the end of the year and you worked a full year and he's like, here's your 50 grand for the year and like one guy worked a day, like here's your 50 grand for your day, you'd be like, what? What's going on? And here's why. We identify with the workers because guess what? We're always focusing on our work. Even as Christians. We're always thinking about ourselves. Our natural bent is to be like the rich man who came to Jesus. And what do I have to do? And this is why the workers are ticked, because they're only thinking about their work. Look what I did. Look what I've done. We make the parable in chapter 20 here about work. We make the parable about us. 
That's how we do with life. We actually make life about us, which is part of the problem. Entering the kingdom of God is not about what we do, and living as a disciple is not about what we surrender. It's always and forever about a God who's shown grace. The parable is not actually about farming or working. It's a lesson about those who enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who reject the kingdom of heaven do not understand grace. And they find themselves governed by good works and a sense of entitlement. Regardless of what good things they do. And those who receive the kingdom of heaven receive grace and they have an overwhelming and governing sense of humility and deep sense of gratitude. Depending on our response to the workers, and I was, as I was reading this, I think many of us may be a little more under law in our thinking than we are under grace. If we're tempted to look at the situation, the workers go, yeah, that is unfair. You may be functioning or functioning under a misunderstanding of grace. The story isn't about the workers at all. It's about the master and watching what the master does, not what the workers say or do. See, earlier in Matthew, there was a familiar passage or a similar passage that talked about harvests and workers. It was in Matthew 9, if you remember, and it said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we often stop there and go, yeah, we need to get out into the harvest. We read the rest of the verse, so it says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. See, even that verse we are tempted to focus on the laborers when it's actually emphasizing asking the Lord to do something. Not us. You see how we read the Bible, we're like, we read it in such a way like, yeah, i got to do something. And there are certainly passages that call us to do, but there's a lot more passages that call us to depend on the Lord to do. The subject throughout this entire parable is not the vineyard or the vineyard workers, or the master it is sorry the master of the vineyard namely God and even though the disciples in this world compared to this rich man are last they're not going to become first by doing or surrendering more they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven not because of the good works they have done but because they have a good lord So before we consider the responses to the workers which we'll look at, I think we need to look at just the grace of the Master. So let's begin in what the Master does. The Master chooses by grace. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, and after agreeing with the laborers for denarius, he sent them into his vineyard. So the master is the focus of Jesus' parable. The master rules. It's his house. The master owns. It's his field with his harvest to reap. The master initiates. He is the one that goes into the marketplace and takes the first step. He went out, it says, to find the workers. He goes to where the men are. The men do not come to him. The men are not even looking for him. The men are not even aware, perhaps, of the field or the master. He comes and finds them. They're not standing at the job board in town. 
They're not wandering the countryside looking for the fields that are full and ready to be reaped. They're standing doing nothing. The master finds them and he graciously chooses some to work in his field. Irresistibly so, because they have nothing to do. So if the master says something, you want money? Heck yeah! They're going to respond. He doesn't invite everyone onto his field to work, but he does invite anyone who does come to work. No one just wanders onto the field to work. It's by invitation. We later see that he returns several times during the day and he calls more workers. Invites more workers. Calls more workers. He invites more workers at 6 a.m., at 9 a.m., at noon, at 5 p.m. And at first you think, well, the 6 a.m. early bird dudes, he gets the prime workers, right? Maybe they had an inclination. Maybe they were at the job board. But certainly, the guys at 5 p.m. who said themselves, no one wanted to hire us. Now, who knows why they didn't want to hire us. Maybe one of them had a peg leg and he didn't walk in the field very well. Maybe they were blind. Maybe they were whatever. They were unemployable. No one wanted them. And guess who picked them? The workers that no one wanted. The master goes, perhaps they're too old. Perhaps they're too young. Perhaps they're just too inexperienced. But by grace, he chooses all kinds. All ages. All hours of the day. Now, Jesus began the parable by saying that the for the kingdom of heaven is like. So this isn't just a story of like how to be a good employer of which it certainly, I guess, could be used that way, but that's not Jesus' intent here. This is about the kingdom of heaven. It's not about a master. It's about God who shows us grace. This is God's world. This is God's mission to rescue it. God always takes the first step, and it's God's choice to call men to be in His field. We do not invite Jesus into our hearts. I want you to know that. We don't invite, I know culturally it, it feels like it, we say that, but the truth is that we're invited into his kingdom. Irresistibly so. Without the master's gracious invitation, these men would not have jobs. Apart from God's gracious invitation of salvation, we will not have life. God chooses whom He wants, when He wants. And some, like John the Baptist, He invites from the womb. And others, like Moses, He doesn't call them onto the mission field until they're 80-year-old fugitives wandering in the hills shepherding sheep. God employs the world's unemployable. God is intending to use you, whether you are young or old, or inexperienced, or broken, or whatever. God is going to use you. You're never too young to be used for the Lord. Should He choose to invite you and call you onto something that's awesome. And you're never too old. I know there's some retired people in here. Okay? Do not ever forget that Moses was 80. And he went for another 40. 
He was 80 when he went back to Egypt. Some of God's greatest draft picks were the people that you would never pick. The 5 PMers. What? No one's hired you? I can see why. Nope. The Lord says, get on my team. Who were they? Fugitives, boat builders, shepherds, religious zealots, teenage mom, politicians, prostitutes, adulterers, invalids, criminals, fishermen, tax collectors. Don't forget, tax collectors were as bad as pimps at that time. These are who the Lord chooses and invites. He accomplishes His mission using the the wild and the weak and the weird and the wayward. All of them. That's a God who shows grace. The Master chooses by grace. But the Master does more than just choose. I believe He says the Master purposes by grace. What does that mean? Well, it's most clearly at the 11th hour He went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? I have a job for you. The Master doesn't hire men so they can just stand in His field. Look at my workers standing there. Nice, huh? Got lots of them. He hires them to work. He takes them from standing still to doing something. The invitation of the Master is not to be called a worker. It is a call to work for Him. In His field, on His crops. Before the Master invited them to work in the field, they were standing in the marketplace all day doing nothing. Their goals in life were simply to pursue whatever pleasure they had in the moment or to avoid pain. That was it. They were wasting their lives. They had no meaning. They had really no joy because of that and no hope. Probably very little security. The 16 hours between morning and night were speed bumped between getting up and laying down in their beds. That's it. And as attractive as that kind of life might sound to those of us who work too much, the truth is that kind of life without meaning is maddening. That was made no more evident than the 2008 recession when so many men lost their jobs and many just kind of went bonkers because we're designed to work. It's grace. By grace, these men now, because they're employed by the Master, have something to accomplish. They have a direction. They have a purpose. And even though they are blessed, think about this, even though they are blessed in that, Ultimately, their job is to make the master greater. They're working his field to get his crops that he can sell or use how he wills. Their job is ultimately for him, even though it blesses them. So we know this is just about work, so think, consider. God's gracious call to, to those who would follow him. According to Matthew, if you remember, when Jesus first called His first disciples, they were fishermen. It was not a call to come, hey guys, come bow at the altar. Come pray this prayer. Come just be gooder than you are. It was a call to work. 
He tells these fishermen that they're now going to be catching men. He's going to use who they are and how they work to work for Him. His invitation to work is for His mission, which is for His glory and grace to more people. In other words, the Lord's call, His gracious choice, if you will, His invitation is for a purpose, and that purpose is not for us. It blesses us, but it's for Him. We are not just given a new identity and said, hey, I'm a Christian now, and then to stand idly by. We are called Christians and then called to live on His mission, work on His mission, serve on His mission at His pleasure, for His greatness and our joy. He doesn't say to His fishermen, follow me and I'll just save your souls. He says, follow me and I'll empower you to save the souls of others. I want you to think about this simple statement for just a second. Our salvation is not primarily for us. I've said this before when I talk about evangelizing because people have a lot of pressure about evangelizing. Oh gosh, I don't want to do that because I'm going to be embarrassed or I'm ill-equipped. We're always thinking about us. And I'm not even necessarily thinking that as we evangelize or proclaim the glories of, of our Lord and the story and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not even for them. It's for Him primarily. And what I mean by that, as we proclaim Jesus, like salvation, I hope people are saved because of that, but that's a secondary benefit. Primarily, God is praised. God is glorified by anyone proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ dying in our place for our sins. Jesus Christ raising from the dead to give us new life. God is praised if no one is saved as a result of proclaiming that. I believe people will be saved and proclaim that, but that's not the primary goal. The primary is to give God glory, which should free you from the pressure of people having to be persuaded or believe. That's not primary. Just as our work is for Him. In fact, nothing is for us. Our marriage is not for us. It's for Him. Our job is for Him. Our families are for Him. Our possessions are for Him. Our energy is for Him. Our money is for Him. Our time is for Him. Every breath that we have is a gift of grace for Him. If that wasn't the case, He would have taken us all a long time ago the moment you believed. You consider the alternative mindset. My marriage is for me. My job is for me. My friends are for me. It's all for Him. We're on Him. His mission. Jesus gives us, I believe, purpose and meaning in our lives. Gives us something to accomplish here as His disciples. Without grace, I don't think we have anything. Particularly, we don't have a purpose. And we're all sent into different fields. Not all of us married. Not all of us you know, 
participate in the same kinds of communities, but whatever field we go into, whether it be our homes or our neighborhoods or our jobs or whatever, whatever part of the field you are in, know that it's all part of God's field. Like, you might be working on this part of the field or this part of the field, but we're all in God's field. It's all God's mission. We're accomplishing His work wherever we are at. We may have our own little patch of grass, but it's in God's field. The Lord gives us purpose by grace. That's not all. The Master's grace we find out is very generous. Verse 8 says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay their wages, and beginning with the last up to the first, and that's what happened. They all received a denarius. So before we focus on the grumbling 6 a.m. workers, which we'll get to, we recognize that the Master's grace to the workers of 5 p.m. Because our tendency is to identify with the 6 a.m. people of like, yeah, I've been working hard. Why don't you try identifying with the 5 p.m. people and how they felt? They're blown away by the generosity of the Master. How many would have said, no, no, I don't, I don't deserve this? We don't hear that, of course. But how many would have taken that coin and went, <laughs> thank you. He doesn't know I started at five, right? They're overwhelmed by the fact that, like, that's, that's way too much. You're great. Okay. The master is generous. And Jesus tells the parable in such a way to make sure that the 6 a.m. or C, the 5 p.m.ers, get paid. Otherwise, it would be like, you know, you pay the first guys, they leave. They don't know what happened. They know what happened. They're watching. The master is generous. And though he is generous to all of the men, those who know they deserve it least recognize the truth the most. Those who were perhaps laziest, those who perhaps wasted most of the day, those who were not looking for work, maybe even trying to avoid it, those who were the last that the world would have ever hired were blessed just as much as the first. The Master gives them more than they earned, more than they expected, more than they deserved. And what about God's grace to us? Though, as I said, we're apt to identify with those who work hard and long all day, we probably need to more identify with those who get more than they deserve. There's some awesome truth. I need you to understand that, and I say I need you to understand, I just want to share, because I don't know if I fully understand it yet. That God doesn't deal with us according to the quantity of our work or the quantity of our faith. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you do. But I also need to understand that God doesn't even deal with us according to the quality of the work we do or the quality of our faith. Like we assume that the work that was done, well, it might have been less hours, but I bet it was good work. I don't think we realize that even the good work we do falls short of the glory of God. 
And we're apt to believe like, you know, I have faith, but my faith isn't that great. It fails a lot. Like, praise God that he doesn't deal with us according to the quality of our faith. Because my faith fails often. But God doesn't save based off of that. Not how much I do or even how much I believe all the time. He deals with us not according to the quantity of our faith or the quality of our faith, but according to His glorious and generous grace. Tim Keller so aptly said, it's not the quality of my faith, but the object of my faith that holds me up. It's not the quality of my faith, but it's the object of my faith. And neither though I am not saved by my work, and the quality of my work doesn't really impress God, it matters to Him. It still matters to Him. Dare I say, God delights in my work as deformed and broken as it is. That I'm saved not just based on the work of Jesus. He takes my work and does something to it. He purifies it. He not just purifies my heart, He purifies my efforts. So as I make mistakes trying to do work for Him, trying to work in His field, and maybe I work too slow, Maybe I get distracted sometimes. Maybe I just do it wrong. He still goes, well done. I mean, you totally missed a huge chunk of crops here, and it's really like an S shape. But, you know, well done. Does that bring you joy? Like, he, like, like a father who comes and, and, and his son brings him up, like, son, draw me this picture. Brings him a picture like, oh, this is awesome. That's how he views our work. He does something to our work. He he sees our work differently. So why depend upon it, right? Because it's going to fall short. Those who surrender their lives, I believe, leave everything for Christ and they certainly are rewarded as promised. But if that rich man because the disciples, he tells them, like, you guys have surrendered a lot. And they did. They surrendered a tremendous amount. And eventually, their lives to the Lord. And the rich man walks away and they go, you won't give up anything. But know this. If that rich man who refused to surrender is invited at the 11th hour, he's getting it all. He's getting it all. And we should hope for that. We should not stand in pride. And this is what Jesus is warning. Don't stand in pride at the rich man crying. And go, should have sacrificed. Look what I'm getting. Don't stand in pride. We, we look with compassion and we hope in love that he will turn. That he will surrender not just his stuff, but his heart to the Lord. And if it's on a deathbed, praise God. When we understand how good God is, how great He is, how generous and gracious He is, that kind of undeserving grace, because we view ourselves as the 5 p.m. dude, that when those who have wasted their lives are transformed in a moment, we will not be moved to jealousy but joy. We will be joyful. And if you're not joyful, 
You don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. We'll close it out with the grumbles because this is where our flesh comes. The Master's grace is sovereign. He chooses who He wants. The Master's grace gives you purpose. He is generous, but also it is unfair. It sounds like I'm saying something backwards than I've been saying, but hear me out. See, even though we know that God is generous, even though we know we get more than we deserve, um, our flesh wants to grumble. Especially those who have been serving and, and, and working as they think for the Lord for a while. But the only reason we grumble is that we forget the grace of God. We grumble because we believe we chose God. He's lucky to have us. We grumble because we believe our work is for us. And we're owed for what we've done. We grumble because we believe we deserve more and others deserve less. We grumble because we forget and misunderstand the grace of God. And when we see a respectable man or a religious man or a rich man who refuses to surrender, we secretly boast in our own salvation as if we had anything to do with it. And then when that same respectable, religious, and rich man repents, we grumble like the prodigal older brother who had a younger brother who squandered it all away and lived the pleasure life. And then when he returned, his dad's like, let's party! He's home! And the older brother's like, what? Here's what he said. Interesting that it takes place in a field as well. Luke has this story, and it's about the same place of Matthew. But Matthew doesn't have it. Luke 15, it says, Now this older son was in the field, and he came and drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? What do these things mean? And he said to him, Well, your brother's come at 5 p.m., and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years have I served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes and wasted time and stood idle in the marketplace doing nothing for how long? As I worked in the field? Kill the fattened calf for him. You're throwing a party. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it's fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this is your brother. He was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. There's two ways to avoid God. Being really bad or being really good. Like the 6 a.m. workers who cried out, it's not fair! Not realizing that actually I think they're proclaiming truth. God's grace is not fair. We don't get what we deserve. If, the God, if, if God or the Master were to give the workers us what they deserve, the Master would have left them idle in the marketplace with nothing to do. 
In truth, we deserve poverty. We deserve purposelessness. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be left alone in our rebellion. And yet, God is gracious. His grace is sovereign. It's meaningful. It's generous. And it's unfair to His glory and our joy. His grace only seems unfair in the negative way if you seem to believe that the quality or the quantity of your work is good enough. The truth is the disciples or anyone doesn't go from last to first because of their good work. They go because they have a good Lord. God's commitment to us is not based on our faithfulness. It's based on His. And the only reason that anyone is invited into His kingdom is because God is not fair. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And the only right response to a God of that kind of grace and unfairness is humility and gratitude. Truly, we are saved by works, just not ours. Someone else's. Our salvation doesn't come from doing good work or avoiding bad work, but from trusting the perfect work of Jesus Christ for us the one who was first and became last so that we could be first with Him. And when you behold the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you are changed. When you look at grace, you are changed. Through the cross, pride gives way to humility. Idle wandering gives way to mission. Entitlement gives way to gratefulness. And jealousy for your own salvation gives way to joy the salvation for others. When you behold the grace of God, everything is changed. And I'll close with a verse out of Titus. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared. Hold on to that. The grace of God has appeared. What does that do to us when we look at that grace? Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness. Grace trains you to renounce ungodliness? Yes. You stop being good, you start looking at good, and you become good. Trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what grace does. But in more, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. See what grace does? Causes us to renounce ungodliness and do good works. But it starts with grace. Looking at our undeserved favor from our Lord. How He chose us and gave us purpose. How He gave us more than we deserved and didn't give us what we did deserve. That will change us. And for the rich man, perhaps you're here. The one who's holding on tightly to their stuff. You're never too lost to receive God's grace. You're never too lost to receive God's grace. You can turn right now and surrender it all. And you'll get it all. And for the devoted disciple who's been a Christian a long time, never, ever, ever forget you're never too found not to need God's grace.
And for the 11th hour idle man, you're never too late. For the old man, for the inexperienced man, never too late to serve on God's mission. And for the hard-working, gifted 6 a.m. man, you're always getting more than you deserve. Don't forget that. And for all men, I pray that we will let grace lead us and cause us to fight against that which would cause us to be lazy or rebellious or ungodly anyway. That grace would cause us to fight that. And as we strive to do good, and I encourage you to do good works and serve to the glory of God, that that is filtered through and motivated by grace. And this is the table of grace. We're reminded that we get more than we deserve and we don't get what we deserve. That Jesus got what we deserve and we get what He deserved. We get all of the forgiveness, all of the love, all of, of joy of being a child of the King while Jesus took our sin. And Jesus bore our shame and our guilt and our punishment. And we get His perfect sinless life. Don't forget that. Rest in grace. Rest in grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. It is overwhelming. It is mysterious. It is unworldly because there's nothing like it in this place. Lord, I pray that some of us here I know, Lord, are trying to avoid You through making all kinds of idols out of all kinds of different things and finding meaning and purpose and joy in the world. Making saviors of money, and saviors of sex, and saviors of substances, all kinds of things. And then there are those who are still avoiding you by being really good. And we believe that our surrender and our hard work for you is what's going to save us. In truth, Father, we're all saved by the same thing, which is your grace. Your grace come and found us when we were alone. And Your grace, and that invitation was not just to be called something, but to have something to accomplish to Your glory and for our joy. And Your grace was much more than, than we ever deserved for anything we might do and even the quality with which we did it. And Your grace, Father, reminds us that we're not getting what we do deserve, which is to be left in our poverty and our rebellion. Thank You for not leaving us there. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for sending Your Son. And I pray that grace will well up in us in a way that is different than when we first came in today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.